the song is bookended by Christ triumphant, God triumphant, the church triumphant. You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Worship Review, the podcast that critically and charitably examines the texts of songs that we sing in our churches. My name is Colin. I am a history professor, former worship leader, all-around stellar individual, and a great friend of my friend and co-host, Tyler. Hey, I'm Tyler. I'm a linguist and a former worship leader myself, and it's my pleasure to be back here with you. We are going to, this week, review as part of our ongoing series of what we call excellent songs, songs that at least one of us think deserve the highest rating on the podcast, which is a five out of five somethings. Tyler has provided the song this week, which is The Church's One Foundation, written by Samuel John Stone in the 1860s, a decade in which very little was going on in the world. And <laughs> Tyler, what can you tell me about this song? Yeah, so this song, uh, at least according to the Psalter Hymnal Handbook, um, it originates from a controversy, a South African controversy, in which a a bishop wrote some things critical of certain books of the Bible and questioned parts of the Christian faith. So as a response, Samuel J. Stone, who is a minister in the Anglican Church, writes many different hymns, hymns of a confession of faith, if that makes sense. And he publishes a book in 1866 uh, called Lyra Fidelium, so the the lyre or the lute of the faithful, uh, 12 hymns on the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. And so this is one of those 12 hymns based on one of the 12 articles, the ninth article. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. And uh, Catholic, uh, as is often done, has, a, has an asterisk with, a clarification that we're talking about the universal church over all the earth, as we see in this text. We're not talking about papacy, popery, no. No, we are not. We are not. Although sometimes with Anglicans, it can be hard to tell. So yeah. this hymn arose essentially as a uh, response to some controversies about the nature of the church. And as we'll see, Mr. Stone, or I should say Reverend Stone, goes through various different, essentially intellectual propositions, expounding on that rather simple phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And, and Tyler, this is not just a gaze backwards into history. A lot of churches still sing this song or versions of this song. Yep. There are different melodies I've heard attached to this song and, and the lyrics, but this is still, a, I imagine, a fairly widely sung song. Yeah, I think the most common melody is Aurelia. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. But you also have the Indelible Grace version. The church is one foundation. Is Jesus Christ her Lord? She is his 
That's actually the tune that I first heard, that latter one. Same. I, I, the version I have was given to me. Um, first, I, I downloaded it from a musician's blog in like 2013 or something. That blog post seems to be now lost. Um, it was Nathan Partain's blog, so maybe if he listens, he can tell us what happened. I was going to say, this is probably a certain musician that we have interviewed on this podcast before. I have to ask him, but... So I, I only know of two places where it existed. It existed on that blog. I downloaded it. It's been on my phone for years, but it never appeared on an album as far as I can tell. And then it was on a mixtape given to me by another um, musician. And th the funny story about this is this other musician uh, whose name is Chris Manley, he at the I, when I first heard this song, I did not know this person. And so then when he gave me a mixtape of all the music that he'd ever done, he said, oh, yeah, I did this internship at this church and i made some music with nathan partain and i just love this version of this song and so i have it as a part of a mixtape uh that that chris manley gave me <laughs> and it's this incredible version of this song they take the indelible grace version and they undo the kind of coffee shop sound to it uh -huh. so it's not this kind of subdued vibe but it opens it's just really really intense yeah. which i think these lyrics really need it Even the even Aurelia, the kind of classical tune to this, still doesn't really deliver a great like punch. But so, there are just a few versions of this song where these articles of faith are really kind of punching you. Let's get into the lyrics. Stanza number one. The church is one foundation. Is Church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Tyler, this sounds kind of like some scripture. Oh, yes. And also, before we jump into that scripture, to me, when, when I hear a song like this, and I can tell there are these scriptural ideas and the person has been meditating on scripture and pouring it into the song. It just, it hits me in a really, really good place in my ear to where I hear this and I just think, oh yes, I, I am in for a treat with this song. And so that was my reaction when I first heard it. That's still my reaction today. And this is building off of some of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3. I'll read verses 10 and 11. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one must be careful how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. So we must be careful not to build any foundation, and in fact, we could not really build any foundation that would last on anything other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. And 
I like here, we already see the church being used with these feminine pronouns, mm -hmm. because as we'll see in the second half of this verse, she's identified, the church is identified as the bride of Christ, which is also a very scriptural idea. And so Reverend Stone includes in his Lyra Fidelium different scriptural passages which influence his thinking. And so that one from 1 Corinthians 3 is the first. Mm -hmm. But he also mentions Jesus's words to Nicodemus, unless a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we see this bride of Christ is Christ is Jesus's new creation by water and the word. Mm -hmm. And then we have this really beautiful, dramatic image from heaven. He came and sought her to be his holy bride. Love that. Yeah. It, it'd be one thing if we had a kind of deistic notion of God where he is um, seated and he orders things in such a way that it comes to pass that certain people happen to be yeah. uh, saved. But the Christian image is one of, of um, certainly a God who ordains all things, but one who himself gets involved in the action. He, he weaves himself into the story. He writes himself into the story. Yeah, it's not like God's just sitting there with a bowl of popcorn after he creates the world and is just, you know, kind of watching to see who picks him, right? He go. I love this line because it is, it's active. It's God going out and seeking to make a people his own. It's beautiful. And Christ purchases, he buys, or as we've talked about on the podcast before, we even have the idea of purchasing as in redemption. Mm -hmm. And so he redeems her with his own blood. He purchases her with his own blood and dies for her life. So we have a kind of, we have a really stark contrast there where in order to save her life, he has to give up his life. You could tell with this song that the author has considered each word and yes they rhyme but they also there are these nice little metaphorical connections and little um juxtapositions like that last line for her life he died that kind of thing it is a very intelligent song scripturally rich song and this first verse epitomizes what i think we see throughout this piece of music elect from every nation She is from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. So th the language here, Tyler, is a little bit less easy to parse in a few ways, like the idea of holy food and even just this word endued is a little bit weird. So this line maybe needs a bit more splainin', as some might say. Okay, well, let's start with this. Uh, many versions of this song have, instead of she is from every nation, elect from every nation. So that's just one interesting point to note that uh, some editors have changed that um, to elect. Personally, I have no problem with that. I think there are definitely people who might have an issue with uh, with using that term just because it's kind of a loaded term. But she, uh, this bride of Christ, unlike the predecessor, the nation of Israel, she is not uh, some kind of ethnic or um, 
singular national identity. She is from every nation. As we see in the book of Revelation, the people of God are assembled out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Yet, while being comprised of all of these very, very different peoples, she is one over all the earth. And she has a charter of salvation. That So a charter is a founding document, a constitution. So what is the, the constitution of her salvation? It is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that is also straight out of scripture. Mm-hmm. She blesses one holy name. So the name of the Lord, God. She partakes one holy food. That's a bit of a strange one. Yeah. I think, as Reverend Stone put in, in his book, 1866, this is from 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Ah. For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So uh, let me go back and read the verse right before it, because I think it makes sense of it. So that way you don't have to infer that we're talking about communion. We're very clearly talking about communion here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So hmm. it's clearly talking here, this holy food of which we partake is is the bread of communion, which is the body of Christ. And... um she presses, so she, she, she advances to one hope, and she is endued with every grace. So this is, this is a verb that we don't often use anymore. It's actually related to induce etymologically from Latin. Ah. And it means to be invested in, to be given a certain quality or property, similar to endow as well. Or maybe imbued. Yeah, it's, yeah, effectively... These, she has these qualities, every grace, not through her own work or anything like that, but because God has endowed her or imbued her with these qualities, with these properties, with these graces. All right, that makes sense. All right, then we get to stanza number three. The church shall never perish, a dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish. Is with her to the end Though there be those who hate her And fall sons in her pale Against a foe or traitor She ever shall prevail The church shall never perish. Amen. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end, though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale. Against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. There's a little bit of a kind of a dark turn here in some ways. So the church was triumphant for a while and we're, we're singing about the great charter of the church and the foundation of the church, but now there are concerns, but they, they don't need to be grave concerns because the church will never perish, but there are bad guys basically outside of the church and false sons inside of the church. Yeah, and it's actually kind of a kind of a scary thought, right? We have false sons 
It's it's almost like you're watching John Carpenter's The Thing, 1982. In this remote Antarctic research station, yeah, there are false suns in here. There may be a traitor or a foe. Um, but we know from experience, really anyone who's been in a church for any amount of time knows people who fall away, knows people who uh, want to usurp uh, what's going on for nefarious purposes. Hopefully you don't know this too much, but, you know, it happens. Church history is filled with stories like this. Uh, and so this can really, like you said, it give us, it, it takes a dark turn and it can really frighten us if we are not aware of what just came before it in the first half of the verse. And so it opens with this really profound declaration. It's originally from what Jesus says to Peter, but the church shall never perish. And Reverend Stone has, upon this rock will I build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think that's really what we're thinking of here, that Mm-hmm. Now, scholars, depending on which tradition they're from, will interpret this verse differently. So the Catholic will interpret the rock as being Peter, and Protestants typically interpret this rock in this verse as being the declaration that you are the Christ. So to give it some context, if I may, mm-hmm. just to justify that assertion from Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he questioned his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter is um, similar to Petros, the word for stone. And so... Uh, many, many scholars think that this is actually wordplay. You are the stone, and on this stone, I will build my church. I will build my church on this declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mm-hmm. In any event, um, what is the assurance that the church shall never perish given in the song? Well, it is the person of Jesus Christ and, and his actions. Yeah. Her dear Lord is with her to the end, to the end of days, to defend to guide, to sustain, and to cherish. So we don't we don't have even though things may look dark in, in certain times, we aren't afraid. And we know that the Lord is with us. Mm-hmm. I like that this song does this song has a structure in some ways much different than many of the contemporary songs we we review. The contemporary songs we review tend to have a problem presented right at the very beginning. And depending upon the quality of those songs, that problem could be as deep as sin and rebellion, or it could be something as superficial as, I don't feel very good, I'm lonely, I'm sad, that kind of thing. But I would say many contemporary songs just kind of get the problem right out of the way, and then the rest of the song is is kind of a response, which is kind of the way that many psalms are. A lot of psalms will often start with, or fairly early on, talk about a challenge that the psalmist is enduring, and then over time, that the, the psalmist's eyes are lifted up, and 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 they end up praising God. So there's nothing wrong with that structure, but it is a kind of structure that I would say is more common in contemporary music. This song has a structure which I would say is more common in the music of the age in which this song was written, the 19th century, and even some songs that are written at the end of the 18th century, where they start off triumphant, and they provide a context of triumph. And it's only within that context that 
the difficulties are then introduced. And I think it has a way of suggesting that, okay, while, while the challenges that an individual or the church is facing are serious, they, the, the, the battle has already been won. There, there aren't, there isn't really any doubt about it. So there's a, there's a kind of sense in which those troubles are not really the main object of the song from, from beginning to end. The song is bookended by Christ triumphant, God triumphant, the church triumphant, God caring for his people, the salvation of Christ, the gospel, that sort of thing. And this song, I think, fits into that. There are some cha- there are some dark parts of the song, this verse and even the next verse too, maybe even the verse after that, but they, they, they're bookended in this really nice way. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that it opens with such a firm declaration and then that stanza closes with a very similar declaration. Not that she won't perish, but that she'll ever prevail. So it's actually got both. It's got, she's not going to fail and she's also going to succeed. All right. So the song continues with some challenges in the church in stanza number four. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. We continue, as you mentioned before, with this kind of dark theme. And it's important to remember that this is written in response to controversy within the church, lest we think that our generation is the only one to have people, you know, question central (laughs) articles of faith. That is not the case. It's far from being true. And I I actually really like this, this description here. Men see the church sore oppressed. So sore is often used in older English to simply be an intensifier. So very, very badly oppressed, even to the point of, you know, maybe martyrdom. Men see her with scornful wonder. This is really interesting language. We have scorn, we, we have wrath, we have indignation over this, but we also have wonder over this because this is wonder in the sense of um, shocked, in the sense of being without earthly explanation for this. Because in light of what we just heard, we might be prone to think, you know, the church shall never fail, therefore there will never be any problems. Right. But in right. fact, despite those assurances, we do see the church oppressed in every age. Uh, yeah. And it, this names a couple of ways. She is distressed by heresies, so people who are preaching false doctrine. This was even addressed in the early church that we have attested in Scripture. Or rent asunder, so torn apart by schisms, mm-hmm. where people divide over doctrine. And we we see this all with amazement, in, not in a good way. Um, yet, saints are keeping their watch. Sa- saints in the church are standing guard. They are aware of what's going on. They are not giving up hope, but instead they're crying out to God. They cry up, mm-hmm. how long? How long will you tarry? Again, 
as you mentioned before, the Psalms do this. Well, this is clearly a reference to various Psalms, which say, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? Will you tarry forever? Or how long will my enemies prevail? That kind of thing too, right? Yes. So in their crying out to God, we have another assurance here. Soon this night of weeping shall uh, be the morning, the morn of song. And for this, Stone gives, the redeemed of the Lord shall come with singing unto Zion. And of course, we also have various various references in scripture, the idea of their weeping becoming rejoicing. Yeah. One aspect of this stanza I like is right in the middle there, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long. So God, of course, is in charge of the church. He's ordaining all things. But this stanza hints at one of the means by which God does this. One of the criticisms sometimes levied against people that have a, say, a strong view of God's sovereignty, which view God, at, which views God as controlling all things, choosing his church, that sort of thing. A criticism can be, well, what role does man's responsibility have in this? And this verse shows that God still uses means. So, one of the ways that God is protecting his church is through the saints in the midst of the church who are praying to God and calling out to him, um, asking him to protect the church, asking him to redeem the world, to bring about the culmination of all things. So I like that this verse shows that. Okay, so we begin to pull ourselves out of the darker part of this song in stanza five. Mid toil and tribulation, the tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I love it. Amazing. So in this verse, we have toil, which is hard labor. We have tribulation, which is suffering. Uh, we have tumult that is uh, loud noise and uh, just the din of battle of her war. And it, it's interesting. I think this is the first time we've actually seen war be used here. So before we had false sons, we had schisms, we had heresies, and we now see um, that this is a part of a great spiritual war. And these foes and traitors, they're not just traitors of doctrine. Um, they're actually betraying the bride of Christ in in battle. Um, she awaits the consummation, the fulfillment of peace forever. This peace that awaits her is the peace that comes with heaven. This peace that when Christ returns at that time with this glorious vision, her longing eyes, her eyes which have awaited this a long time and desired it, are blessed and the church victorious over her foes, over her uh, traitors in this war shall be the church at rest all of all of her labor all of her labors are um, now done at that time
Yet on yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one, with all her sons and daughters who by the master's hand led through the deathly waters repose in Eden land. I find this fascinating because one of the struggles we see in contemporary music that we have reviewed and often that has not scored well on this podcast is an over-reliance on a kind of subjectivism and mysticism where the main focus of the song is a highly internal and subjective experience of God and emotional experience of God, which has little connection to objective reality. This stanza talks about objective truths about God. The church has union while she is on earth with a triune God. This communion that she has is mystical in that it is difficult to grasp in a kind of sensory experiential, experiencing the senses, objective empirical senses. So it's talking about something mystical, but in a completely different way that contemporary songs talk about something mystical. And that mystical thing is still responding to or being generated by an objective truth, which is what scripture says about Christ's union with the church and the Trinitarian nature of God. Really, really neat set of words here. Yeah, and I think this is pretty clearly where we are returning to the Apostles' Creed and uh, explaining what is meant by, I believe in the communion of saints. Um, that's a really it's a really interesting idea, but what, what exactly does that mean? Well, uh, as this verse makes clear, union with God is all, it, that's also the uh, the pretext for communion of the saints because we are in in Christ we are united to Him and thereby united to the saints. So we have union with God and communion with the saints. And it's interesting, you know, communion of the saints. I would say that the union of saints refers to the saints that we share in worship of God with on Sunday morning. But this is also making clear that there is a communion with saints who have gone on as well with her sons and daughters of the church who who and now we have a relative clause we have to go to the the verb repose in eden land uh in paradise the mm -hmm. uh in heaven with with god a return to the shalom the peace of eden and they have been led by the master's hand through the deathly waters and I think for this, we go back to Isaiah to, to make sense of leading through the waters, because this is this actually plays a pretty big role in, in Puritan thought, too. But this is from Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And this communion that we have with the saints who have gone on is, in fact, it is hard to comprehend naturally. It doesn't make sense uh, to us how we could have any communion with those who've gone on. And so this 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 author rightly calls it mystic, uh, but sweet as well. All right. Now that gets us to the final stanza. Oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. 
There past the border mountains, wherein sweet vales the bride, with thee by living fountains forever shall abide. Listeners who are familiar with the song will recognize that that's the second half of that last stanza about, you know, the sons and daughters who repose in Edenland. That is missing in a lot of modern versions where the last verse ends with the first half of this verse. O happy ones and holy. Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. And what I like about this older version is that it opens with this appeal, Lord, give us grace, etc. But then it actually ends with a promise. There, past the border mountains, I'll get to that in a minute, what that is talking about, Mm -hmm. where in sweet veils the bride with thee by living fountains forever shall abide. And when I think about this border mountains, uh, I think this is Revelation 21. Ah, okay. He carried me to a great and high mountain, this angel did, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, uh, coming down out of the clouds. So I think this is, um, we have to, we, we pass through the waters in order to get to, to heaven. Here, it seems like the, the author has inferred uh, that the mountains uh, form a, a border, a boundary. And I think some of that might lie on the topography of Israel in particular. But in any event, we have these border mountains which afford John the ability to view the new Jerusalem. And so uh, this author says that the bride dwells in sweet vales, in, in valleys, in, in dells, uh, in between mm-hmm. these mountains, abiding with Christ forever. The lamb, as Stone notes, shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And that comes from Revelation 7. Yeah. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, for the Lamb shall feed them and lead them unto living fountains of water. I think also, you know, that's, uh, this is hinted at early in, in Christ's ministry with the woman at the well, where he, he gives the living water. So I think now it's probably time to think about our overall impressions of the song, which it should be obvious, certainly from the few comments that I've made. I find this song to be powerful, precise, clear, scripturally sound and well-written, metaphorically consistent, where it uses metaphor. I see almost nothing really to criticize in the song. Even its age isn't really a hindrance because, again, apart from a word like endued and maybe that partaking of holy food being a way to, you know is, is being a way of talking about bread being a way to reference communion in a little bit of an obscure way these are very minor you know obstacles in a in a song which is really packed with fantastic truth what do you think tyler yeah i mean there's just some glorious imagery here of of heaven of the rest that awaits the saints and as far as songs go that clarify what is meant by i believe in the catholic church and the communion of saints, this is probably the best one that I'm familiar with. I don't know of anything else that that really extrapolates that in song better than this one. And I like that it mentions spiritual warfare uh, briefly, but really, really um, challenges within the church itself, because uh, I don't know many songs that actually talk about, you know, heresy and schism and, and false sons and things like that. And so that can be I wouldn't like sing this, you know, the week after a congregational meeting where there were a conflict or anything like that. Yeah, sure. But it can be a means to say, look, you're not alone in feeling discouraged by this. You're not alone in feeling worried. And I just want to assure you that 
no one can lay a foundation other than the one which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, what about a rating for you, Tyler? Yeah. You brought this one to our excellent song series, so I'm guessing I know what your rating is going to be. Yeah, I think it's a five. Um, I think so. There are some times where there is an inference drawn or something like that, like the border mountains and things like that, where, you know, you might nitpick and say, well, which border mountains? I'm looking at a map here and I can't figure out what you're talking about. Sure. But I think um, nothing is in this song, as far as I can tell, that is not from scripture it's all derivative of scripture. It's not singing scripture, but it's pretty close in a lot of ways to taking scripture and compiling it into a a song. And so as far as that goes, I'll give it a five out of five creeds. Nice. Because I think this is the first creedal song that we've that we've done, I think. Yeah, I think. No, no, no. Um, did we do did we do one about the Apostles Creed, uh, a Getty oh, song? Maybe wait. I'm. Yeah, we believe in one true God. Yeah. However, that was a song about the entire creed, and this is a song about one. It's it's like an in-depth dive into one proposition. Yeah. What are you going to give it? Uh, Yeah, so like you, I would just say this is a fantastic song. I've already given my summary, my concluding thoughts. So, yes, five out of five violin parts, and I give it violin parts because the first time that I encountered this song was in a church where... The the version that I had heard first had this guitar part, which was like na 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 na. It kind of had this like fast moving guitar part, and we had a violinist in the church, or at least maybe even more than one violinist in that church. And so whenever they were playing with us, they would play the this fast violin part in the the musical interludes in between stanzas and it it's just a memorable part to me so listeners thanks again for listening to another episode of the worship review we hope you enjoyed this contribution to what i hope is a, a growing and uh, useful catalog that we have accumulated of reviews of songs the hope for this podcast is not only that it will be enjoyable to listen to every week that we produce a podcast episode or at least most weeks sometimes we miss one occasionally when when one of us fathers a child or something like that we have to we have to pause but otherwise we we provide this podcast almost every week and those podcasts remain um not as long as the church will remain the podcast will perish but uh they'll be around for a while and hopefully you can use those in conversations that you all are having in your churches whether you're a pastor or a worship leader or just a person in the congregation, or just people like Tyler and I who like to have conversations about worship music. So whatever you use the podcast for, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please send us an email if you like, feedback at the Worship Review. Find us on Twitter, and uh, feel free to contribute to the podcast as well to pay for our uh, website costs, which are not too much, but we always appreciate little tips that you can give us if you wish to do so. And until next time, we bid you have a great week. And we will be with you again soon. Take care. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Christ comes rent asunder.